Good morning, church family. Um, I'm going to ask you, please stand up for the reading of God's precious word. So today's passage is going to be in Matthew chapter 2, from 13 to 23, on page 808, and the Bible's around the room. If you don't own a Bible, I will invite you to please take one of those uh, as a gift from the members of Living Stones. And, well, today I'm going to read in Spanish. We do this to rejoice that um, God's church is multicultural and we are all his children. So, when I finish reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord and you all will say thanks be to God. And we say this because we believe that the Bible through it's God's word. So, I'm going to start reading right now. Matanza de los niños. Después que partieron ellos, he aquí un ángel del Señor apareció en sueños a José y dijo, Levántate y toma al niño y a su madre, y huye a Egipto, y permanece allá hasta que yo te diga. Porque acontecerá que Herodes buscará al niño para matarlo, y él... Despertando, tomó de noche al niño y a su madre y se fue a Egipto. Y estuvo ahí hasta la muerte de Herodes, para que se cumpliese lo que dijo el Señor por medio del profeta cuando dijo, De Egipto llamé a mi hijo. Herodes entonces, cuando se vio burlado por los magos, se enojó mucho y mandó matar a todos los niños menores de dos años que había en Belén, en todos sus alrededores, conforme al tiempo que había inquirido de los magos. Entonces, se cumplió lo que fue dicho por el profeta Jeremías cuando dijo, Voz fue oída en Ramá, grande lamentación, lloro y gemido, Raquel que llora a sus hijos y no quiso ser consolada porque parecieron. Pero después de muerto Herodes, he aquí un ángel del Señor apareció en sueños a José en Egipto, diciendo, Levántate, toma al niño y a su madre y vete a tierra de Israel, porque han muerto los que procuraban la muerte del niño. Entonces, él se levantó y tomó al niño y a su madre y vino a tierra de Israel. Pero oyendo que Arqueolo reinaba en Judea en lugar de Herodes su padre, tuvo temor de ir allá. Pero avisado por revelación en sueños, se fue a la región de Galilea. Y vino y habitó en la ciudad que se llama Nazaret, para que se cumpliese lo que fue dicho por los profetas, que habría de ser llamado Nazareno. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with humble heart and gratitude for sending Jesus to us and fulfill the promise of a Savior. We pray that you guide Pastor Mark, who will teach us this morning, <laughs> and for us to be humble, to understand and learn more about you. Help us to keep, to keep, live, and share your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Amen. What, um, what we are seeing is, um, is this value of unity and diversity. And um, we love it, the display. And just if you can get a chance, encourage April. She's up here first time kind of hosting and did, a, did great. Yeah. And, um, and what I love about that is, is celebrating that unity and diversity is it's definitely ethnic diversity. It's language diversity. It's gender diversity, men and women displaying their gifts, being full of the Holy Spirit, being able to lead, and, um, and I just love it. So it's a, and, and here we have, the, we have span, the whole thing. And so what a great morning that we get to be a part of. 
And we get to see God's diverse kingdom at work. And so, good morning, Living Stones. It's good to be here. Stoked, yeah. And uh, we, got, we got a lot to uh, cover, a couple things. Um, talking about Unity University, another thing I want to talk about, we were at Hometown Christmas yesterday, and uh, many of you were there with us. And um, what an incredible morning, handing out the cocoa, handing out the invites, having conversations. Um, man, I've only been in Sparks like seven weeks, and I was at the judging table. I'm like, man, I'm like, what criteria, you know, does, uh, does it bring warmth and joy to my heart? Does it may remind me of Christmas? And does it look like Sparks? I don't know. Uh, but I'm, I'm rating it, you know. So, man, incredible. What a great morning. And, um, and a couple just, just shout out. Thank you to everybody, whether you, you showed up or you worked the morning shift, you worked the day shift, you worked the closing and cleaned up. Um, thank you. Thanks for serving. Thanks for being there. Thanks for showing up. You just showed up and was at the parade and just being a presence. Love it. Really thankful. And, um, and I especially, um, you know, we talked about whether you were morning shift or mid shift or closing shift. And I just want you to know that Lindsay, who was over the whole thing, she was at all those shifts. She's in the very back. She's dead tired. So she'll probably lay her head down and fall asleep back there. That's what, and she was there Friday night with the students. She's kind of put this whole thing together, and Adam was handing a lot of that off, and she did a killer, amazing job. And I want you to know, meeting Francine, who works for the city and is over the parade, and her gratefulness and thankfulness that our church is able to cover all the volunteers. And we don't just hand out cocoa, but we're all over the place, setting up things for the city, tearing things down for the city. And uh, just really, really proud of you and really um, encouraged to be there in it with you. And um, make sure you give a big thanks to Lindsay because she's, she's worn herself out for that thing and did an awesome, awesome job. So we're in this text. We're in the middle of our Advent series. And uh, apparently today we're going to have some baptisms. Uh, so if you could fit in this trash can, that today's it. This is it. You know, or we could be Presbyterian, just just. Put it right on your face, splash yourself, we'll call it a baptism. <laughs> this is great. I'm up, I don't know what's going on here. This is, it's awesome. Uh, usually it's the first six rows you might get wet. It's actually up here with a bunch of electricity. So I feel really safe. <laughs> I feel really safe. This is good. We'll see. Oh man. All right. So we're in the third week of, of Advent. We're walking through this introductory story in Matthew. And Matthew brings us right into Jesus and Advent is about the arrival of Jesus, and the arrival was kind of mixed up all over. It, it, people thought the arrival would be one thing, and it turned out to be a baby born in a stable, no place, and, and, and wise men bringing gifts to this poor family in a podunk village. I mean, it's, it was, it's all crazy, and it wasn't adding up, and uh, Jesus' arrival caused some issues. It, Jesus' arrival interrupted the story. And, um, and then whenever we are interrupted, right, it's like it kind of frazzles us. It makes us think twice. We wonder kind of what's going on, and that's our text this morning. Is we have these two stories that are always competing. The story of Jesus that's been whispered on every page of Scripture from the very beginning, and our story that we like to blare out as loudly as can be. We have Jesus' story, this whisper. In the Old Testament, there's these little clues like the still small voice, not the earthquake, not the fire, 
not the, the avalanche, not the big, but the little, the quiet. God's there. Meanwhile, we're trying to kind of live this big, loud life. And there's these two stories, and they're colliding, and sometimes we don't always see how they're connected, and we struggle with it. Um, I have a really, uh, really good friend. He, he worked for me on, on a, uh, as a volunteer, but on a staff for a lot of years when I was a church in Long Beach. Um, and he is, a, um, he is an ex-MLB baseball player, played in the World Series in 1976, played for the Pirates, really great guy. And, uh, and if, you, if you ever met this guy, uh, you would not know any of that. You wouldn't know that he has a World Series ring. You wouldn't know that he's incredibly wealthy. You wouldn't know that he owns houses from, from, from Atlantic to the Pacific. I mean, this guy's probably the most wealthiest guy I've, I've ever like, known personally. Uh, he has so much money. But the very first time uh, that I met him, uh, he took me out to lunch, and we came to this really like rusted out 1970s van and it still felt like it had like shag and it was just nasty and there was a padlock on the door I'm not even joking uh the first time I met this guy and I I knew he was a major leaguer I got a little and I was like wait a minute (laughs) we're getting in this van and there's a padlock on the outside I'm not getting in this van that's what (laughs) that's what I was thinking but literally there there's like this gate closure with a padlock and that's how he locked this van. This guy lived the most kind of humble life I have ever seen. He has so much money. Right now he's pursuing the senior PGA golf tour. And I went golfing with him once and he golfs with no shoes. This guy's weird. This guy's totally weird. He's weird. He's incredibly wealthy. He served our church in big ways. And when there was kind of, you know, like, budget downfalls or unexpected things going on at the building, you know, like leaking roofs on a stage where your pastor's going to get electrocuted, things like that. Um, he'd go, man, let me take care of that. And he just, that, that was his kingdom player, this amazing guy. But his life that you would see with his raggedy shorts and his bare feet on the golf course, he's, I, I was with him once we got kicked off a golf course because he was barefoot. Because they, they, they were like, we should have a rule about this, you know? And it's like, and a padlock on his van, there were, there was these two things. Incredibly wealthy was one part of his story. Major League Baseball player, Pirate 76. But on this other side of his life is like poverty. It just didn't connect. The stories didn't connect. And I, I think sometimes we, we, we're, we kind of feel that. And I, he didn't feel that because that's the life he loved. He just didn't want to be known for that other stuff. He just lived simply. And then I read a stat once that said, like, most of the world's millionaires buy their jeans at Walmart or something like that. Like, people who actually have money not just look like they have money. They make, they make really smart decisions, it turns out, right? That goes along with it. And, and so there was this dichotomy of his life. And I was feeling it for him. I'm like, man, you, you could probably buy yourself a new van. He's like, but I love this van. <laughs> you could probably buy yourself a lock, you know? Like, let's, let's just start there. <laughs> Creepy. And... Uh, <laughs> and I would feel it for him because you want these kind of two stories to, to blend together, but sometimes they don't blend together in the way that we want them to. And when we travel with Jesus, when we travel seeking after God, sometimes the story of God and sometimes our story, they don't seem like they make sense. That God is, God is 
all-powerful. He's doing something over here. He has all this ability. He's a king of cattle on a thousand hills, all this kind of stuff. And yet in my life, it feels like man, I'm golfing barefoot. It feels like, and I got a padlock on the van. It feel, You know, like it just doesn't feel like these two parts of my life, these realities that I sing about. Think about the things that we sing about on a Sunday. It's like, man, how grand are these things? Jesus is alive. He conquered the grave. It, we're not going to die. We're going to be raised up at the end of this. I mean, it, the rock of age. We sing all this amazing doctrine, and then we wrestle. How does that work itself out in my real life? And sometimes it feels like we're living two different stories, and Advent invites us to kind of make sense of both of these. And Advent really is about God, God's story interrupting our story. And that's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 23, holds these kind of three short little segments. And as Matthew wrote these, it, it forms one kind of big thought, but he gives us three different segments that all have one kind of formula. Every little story in 13 through 23 has the same components to it. Because he's, he's trying to bring us in. And, and the way he's doing it, he's going, he's like, well, here's Herod's story. And, and then here's all these, the, here's the villagers' story. Or, and, then, and then here's Mary and Joseph's story. And so it's like, there's all these three different stories, but they all have kind of one single thread running through them. And it's all of their story gets interrupted by the advent. It's interrupted by Jesus coming. And so I want to look at these three and then show you how ultimately how to, how to make our story and what the story God is writing one and the same. Maybe deal with the conflict a little bit that it doesn't feel like the great things about God that we sing about are actually manifesting in our real lives. Verse 13, here's the first little story. Now when they had departed, talking about they, uh, we're, we're talking about the, the wise men who bring the treasures, right? And they worship and they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh and other essential oils to Jesus, apparently. And, uh, and then when they had departed and took their little briefcase with them, uh, then we're left with this moment. And what happens? An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And we'll get to that second part. I want you to see, though, in each of these things, one, verse 13, the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. And then if you go down to verse 19, when Herod dies, we'll get there in a second, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. If you end up going to verse 22, uh, you have uh, th this formula continuing, uh, continuing, but when he heard that um, Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod. He was afraid, being warned in a dream. The very, the very first thing that Matthew gets across to us without really much content, just telling us how the story is playing out, is that God is intricately, intricately moving his story forward, controlling all the pieces, directing every part of their lives in order to what? In order to bring Christ, to, for Christ to arrive onto the scene. Not just to arrive as a baby, but to arrive to his ultimate purpose and calling. And what do you see here? God is taking no chances when it comes to the revelation of Jesus. 
He directs by a dream. An angel appears and Joseph is being led. We see that the birth of Jesus was God's sovereign work over all things. And sovereign just means active direction over all things. Not passive. Not like he, you know, not like he just kind of set a watch and, and push, you know, and just push go and let it tick away and do its thing. He's actively directing all things. And you can't get away from this idea from the Old Testament to the birth of Jesus to our life. God is actively directing all things. That's a great encouragement. But right from the beginning, what? They're being led by the Lord via an angel. An angel's literally appearing. The first part of their story and God's story that needs to kind of come together is this idea that God is taking no chances with either his story or your story. Are you with me? God is taking no chances. He's not just like, well, let's just see how that pans out, shall we? Like he doesn't, he's not doing that. He's like, man, I'm not taking a chance of Jesus, Jesus appearing. And if the advent encourages us, it encourages us to this degree that from the very beginning, we were told in Genesis chapter three that the seed of Eve would ultimately come and crush the head of the serpent, right? That's being fulfilled right here. So thousands of years go by, and we talked about this on Advent week one, just the slowness of God to unveil his plans. And that he's willing to do that over thousands of years. And we're like, right now. Like, I want God on prime, you know? Two-day shipping, God, right now. I prayed, where's that? You know? Like the drive through God, you know? Where's that? No, no, he doesn't work that way. He, he may not even work in the way that you want in your lifetime, not alone in two days. Because he's working this greater plan, but here's the encouragement. He's directing all things. Now, if you think that this isn't, descriptive, not only of what's going on right here, but that Matthew has a, a greater view. The Bible fills it in that God is not only directing the birth of Jesus, but directing all of our lives. That's, that's explicit through every page of scripture, but I'll give you two in the New Testament, Acts 17. Many of you know this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath. Oh, and, and by the way, everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You're here because God is allotting the boundary of your life. You live in this time, in this season. You might go, man, I really belong like 100 years ago. I'm just more of like an old soul kind of guy, you know? Or I, you know, whatever. And But this is the moment on the stage of human history that you've been allowed it. This, this is your period of time. And God has orchestrated it all, not because he needs you. And by the way, he gives you breath and everything else. Why? Because he has fenced in your life. Every Everything in your life is this active work of God weaving your story and his story. Go to James chapter 5, verse 14, 16. Listen how his activity comes. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. It's another way of saying, hey, whoa, uh, 
Come now those who say, I'm going to go to that job and get that job and go move to that place. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little bit of time, then vanishes. That word meant fog. You're here today and gone today. That's what that is, right? You're a mist and you vanish. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Literally, if we are not mindful of the active work of God in our everyday life, the James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, that's evil. It's evil to believe that you have this supreme ability to decide the things of your life. No, no. If God wills, what's the first thing? You'll live? What? Huh. You're like, man, I really want to go and move there and do that job. Oh, yeah, yeah? Are you going to live? Because <laughs> that's first, and you need me for that, right? I love this little scripture. It's one of my favorites. If the Lord's wills, you'll live, <laughs> and then you'll do this or that. But we're like all this or that, and we forget that every breath and every time of our life and all of our days and every, all of our life is being directed. Now, you might say, yeah, but isn't it easier if an angel appeared to me? You might go, oh, yeah, yeah, but Joseph and Mary had it easy. I mean, they, in a dream, an angel came. Okay. Jesus tells a story about this. The big question for us is, if an angel came, would you listen anyway? Would it be enough? Jesus tells a story of a guy who goes to hell and begs, begs Moses to be able to go back and, and share the gospel, to share the reality of sin and repentance and the judgment of God for those who do not turn to God. And, and what is he told? They have the law and the prophets and if they haven't listened, if your brothers haven't listened to them, they're not going to listen to you, even if you were to come back from the dead. Why? Because the heart doesn't want to hear God. The heart doesn't want to know God. Romans tells us that no one has see, sought after God with pure motives, or truly sought after, but that we're all sinful, we're all evil. And so we think, man, it'd be easy if God would direct my life via angel, but Jesus tells us if an angel came to you, maybe you'd have a great experience and maybe it would spur you on, but ultimately that experience alone would not root you deeply in anything. And check this out. If an angel spoke to you, here's the assertion of the Bible. If an angel spoke to you, it would actually be less impressive than the Bible that was written by the Holy Spirit who is greater than the angels. Yeah, you with me? Okay. This is, this is the assertion. The Holy Spirit lives in you, not an angel. The Holy Spirit has written this book, not an angel. You actually have more of God and revelation of God than Joseph, Joseph and Mary ever had with the experience of the angel showing up. It would literally be less impressive in a reality way. It would, it would be let now maybe to us and our desire for an experience, and maybe because it would make us feel really special if an angel appeared. If we understand the difference between the angels and the Holy Spirit, God himself, this is why the Holy Spirit must be God also. 
Because he's not just a higher angel. He's not just a spiritual force. It is God himself who's revealed himself. And what does Jesus go? Jesus says, hey, I got to go so that what? The helper can come. And, and then when the helper comes, you'll actually do greater things than I did. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is greater than any other being or angel. So check this out. God is orchestrating your life in the very first connection to our story and God's story is this idea that he's directing everything. And it would be nice like Joseph and Mary, but actually when you look at the rest of the story after Jesus rises from the dead and then he sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit fills his church, that's when they begin to have power and traction and the church grows and people are evangelizing and and because they're full of God himself lives in you. And yet, would we be willing to admit in our confession time that we have every Sunday that I'm not satisfied with the Holy Spirit? I'm not satisfied with the Bible. I want God to do a different kind of directing. And what you're actually asking for is a less impressive, powerful revelation. That's amazing. That's, that's the argument. And then look at this in verse 19 and 22. Notice that the angel comes in two different times that Joseph and Mary are told to go back uh, into Israel, and then and then and then they leave Egypt, <clears throat> and then somewhere along the way, they're told again, and that's where this idea of faith and dependence comes on. Is that man that God's story and our story? We're not always clear. We just kind of the Bible gives us clues and information, and we move in faith, and we we wait for the rest of our story to make sense with what we're reading in the Word and in, and community and the Holy Spirit in us. Yeah, it's radical. Advent ultimately reminds us of this. God is intricately working behind the scenes, directing every part of our lives. Man, that's good. Here's the problem. We talked about it in the very beginning. There seems to be a disconnect between God's sovereign work and my real life. Because sometimes it doesn't feel like God is sovereignly at work in my life. The problem with Advent, and we see in this, the three little segments, the problem is that most of the time, God's sovereignty doesn't appear or show that God is sovereign over anything at all. It doesn't doesn't appear in God's sovereignty. You're like, God directs all things. Well, why is this happening in my life? It doesn't appear that God is directing all things. It, it appears that God is packed up and left. It appears that God wound the clock and let it go. It appears that God is more of a deistic view, which is he makes all things and present but, or, or there, but not present, not personal. The problem for us is aligning this idea of God's directing and sovereign work in the world and my real life. And that, You'll, you'll see as this, these three problems arise. So the first one, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Imagine for a moment, Mary, Joseph, angels have appeared. It, 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 it looks like God is aligning all things by, by favor and grace alone, Mary's been selected to be the earthly mother of Jesus. 
seems like there's a lot of favor of God happening all over the place. And then all of a sudden, Herod gets angry. Now Herod wants to kill Jesus. And then what? They have to flee their land, and they have to go into Egypt. Wait a minute. I thought God was sovereign here. Why, why are we running? Isn't that the question? I thought God was sovereign here. Why are we fleeing? I thought God was sovereign. Who is Herod to God? But sometimes it appears that God is not sovereign over anything at all. And this is this great problem. And the sovereignty of God creates this problem because the sovereignty of God works differently than how we'd want to work it. But when the sovereignty, God, the sovereignty of God is at work, it's often a threat to us. You see that in the story, Jesus, God has worked all things. He's born, and then what? Herod becomes afraid. Jesus is a threat. And Pastor Greg talked about it last week uh, when he talked about there's two kings, one's elected, and one was born a king, right? Well, you have this king that was born, and now Herod is all kinds of messed up about it, and so it's a great threat. And so then what does Herod want to do? Herod wants to kill Jesus. That's one way to respond to the threat of God's sovereignty in our life. We want to get rid of it. We want to push it away. We want to ignore it. We want to tell God, no, you don't get it. You, don't, you can't have it. I don't want your control. I don't want your work. I don't want your sovereignty in my life. Uh, the sovereignty of God and the story that God is writing is a great threat to us. And one option is we try to rid the world of it. We try to rid our world of it, our world. But I don't want a God. I don't want a God that's going to lead me because I think I could do a much better job. All of a sudden, the story of God and the sovereignty of God begins to be a threat to our real life. And it was also a threat to Mary and Joseph, wasn't it? Hey, if you stay here, Jesus is going to die, which you've been entrusted and steward with the Son of God as a helpless little humble baby. you got to protect him. That's incredible. It's a whole other sermon. But then you have Joseph and Mary. By the way, if you're with Jesus, there's probably a good chance what? You're going to die too. The sovereignty of God bringing Jesus onto the scene creates this great threat in the story of Mary and Joseph and in the story of Herod. And we, we could go one of two ways. Either we want to destroy Jesus or destroy the sovereignty of God or the story of God at work in our life, or we're going to be forced to exile. And that's ultimately what this whole little segment is about. Joseph and Mary go to Egypt. What is Egypt? Egypt is outside the land of God's people. Egypt brings us way back when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. Egypt takes us all the way back to the desert where they wandered for 40 years, kind of spiritually and physically lost. Egypt is, is being removed from the land. Egypt is exile. And the thread of God's story that, that we wrestle with is often that God is inviting us into a kind of an exile, a kind of discomfort with the comforts around us, a kind of discomfort in the life, a life that's in odds with the story we want versus the story that God is writing. Peter calls us strangers and aliens in the world, exiles. To the churches who are exiled is how the beginning of the book of Peter begins. So Joseph and Mary, Jesus appears, the sovereignty of God's at work, and what? It's a great threat. Herod wants to kill. 
Joseph and Mary have to figure out whether they'll be willing to go into exile, willing to go out of the land, willing to go where they don't belong, willing to be strangers and aliens in another land because God is doing a greater work. The second one in the second story, verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. So he was a great threat. He tried to kill him. Now he became furious because he lost him. And then he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. That's how threatening Jesus was to him, right? He thought, well, then I'll, I'll get rid of all the babies. If I can't find him, we will rid them all. I cannot think of a harder text to preach during a Christmas or, or like a Christmas season, right? You don't want to preach that Herod has all the male children killed. This is unbelievable to me. One of the things that it does is it tells us how far we're willing to go to avoid and fight against the story of God at work in our life. It's a last-ditch effort of remaining king. It's a latch, it's a last opportunity to assert his authority. Fine. If I can't find the king person, I will rid this whole community of all these babies. This is a this is incredible, sad, and grieving. And, and it very much is our story. I think, like, why is this scripture here? Why, why memorialize this? Why remember this? I think it's one thing when you when you read about the suffering of an adult that is heartbreaking, especially if you know and love them. But there's something else about the suffering of children, isn't there? Because children represent this kind of innocence and weakness, protection, need of protection. And, and when a child suffers, there's just another kind of pull. And some of you have experienced this. Some of you are coming into Christmas, and this is more of your story right now. You've You've suffered great loss. Maybe you even suffered the loss of children or even the loss of the dream of children. You're being invited into this very story and it's full of grief. And remember in the very first week I talked about Advent. Advent is God taking our grief seriously. And here's this moment where we're breaking in, but here's the problem of God's sovereignty. Jesus arrives on the scene and we're like, yes. And then some 40 babies get killed. How do we make sense of that story? The small community was a a couple hundred people. 40, probably 40 little two-year-old boys were yanked out of the hands of their parents and murdered. And Jesus is king? Jesus is here. This is the great arrival we've been waiting for. We've been waiting years and centuries for for Jesus to come, for God to send the one who's going to save the world. And now my baby's dead. That's Advent. That's the, the confusion between God's story and my story. 23 years pastoring. I've buried some babies. I cannot think 
of a more painful season of watching mom and dads bury babies. We had some friends, close friends, loved Jesus. They had a baby boy under two pass away in his sleep in a nap. We went to the house and we wept. Fell on the floor with his mom holding her baby in her arms. Weeping and cried and calling out. I'll never forget as she's calling out, Lord Jesus, raise him, raise him. God, please raise him, raise him. And she just kept praying over and put my arms around the dad and mom. And we prayed and we wept and we wailed together. And that was one pain. And then the next pain was after several hours of that, the corners coming and her having to relinquish the body of her little boy, Josiah, to be taken away. And there was wailing and weeping. I've never felt or experienced such deep agony. And we prayed. That is this moment. This moment. This picture is from Notre Dame Cathedral in France. It's on the outside of the building. It's called the Massacre of the Innocents. And it, de it depicts this moment, which is amazing to me. Because I'm like, why, why do we want to remember this? Why is this something that we would carve out of stone and put on our church? What is so significant about this moment? Don't, don't we want to just forget it? No, no. We're being, we're being called into this reality of our story and God's story. And if God is sovereign, these people here are going, wouldn't it be better if Jesus didn't come at all? I'd still have my boy. I'd still have my baby. We, mem we memorialize this moment because it reminds us two things. It reminds us how far we will go to not give up our throne. And it reminds us of how much we need Jesus. And that all of us, it is, it is better to have Christ. It's better. I'll come back around. But the second part is this problem with the murder of children and the sovereignty of Jesus. And it's like, this doesn't fit. Doesn't fit. Look at the third section. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, and for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in a place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth. Now, we know later on, Jesus is from Nazareth. We're even told at one part in the story later on, does anything good come from Nazareth? That tells us a lot about this little town. This little, this little town was a town of maybe 400 people. That's it. And here's Jesus. And, and Joseph and Mary can't return to their city and can't return to their people, can't return to their parents, can't return to their family. They end up 
kind of going, having to go in hiding by going to this really small, recluse city of Nazareth. And it brings us into this third idea about God's sovereign story and our story. And that is when we embrace the sovereignty of God, we in some ways become exiles. When we embrace the sovereignty of God, we wrestle through the value of Jesus and whatever it is that we're losing. And then when it comes to the sovereignty of Jesus and the story of Advent, we are struck with this idea that if we embrace Advent, things will never return to a normal. There's a lot of people who meet Jesus and then they want their life to not change. There's a lot of people who give their life to Jesus and then they wrestle with God when God's like, I want your life now. You came to me. I'm saving you. It's mine. And we're like, no, 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 no. And we begin to add Jesus to our life instead of giving our life to Jesus. And here's what happens. They are finally allowed to come out of exile, but they never return to their normal. They live in Nazareth. They live on the outskirts. They, they live in obscurity. They, they aren't with family. They're not with others. They're by themselves. And the idea that Jesus is sovereign, God is sovereign. The story is God directing all things, but yet they're kind of forever outsiders and nothing returns to normal. That's the wrestle. So we have exile. We have the value and grief and suffering and that Jesus is worth it somehow. And then that nothing returns to normal. This is the problem with the sovereignty of God. Here's the third part of the formula. The first part is God's directing all things. Your life is not a mistake and Jesus and the arrival of Christ is not a mistake. The second part is there's a problem with God's sovereignty in our story because it doesn't seem to line up. But the third part is what do we do when we can't make sense of this? And this is where we're invited into this great comfort. And, it, and it's not going to be all comfort because all, cause only Jesus can do that. But this is what we're being invited to if this is your Christmas. Grief, suffering, exile, a new normal, a loss of relationships, friendships, values, things that you loved once, people you loved once, but you've had to walk away from that life. And now there's a new normal and you miss that life. But then we're always being asked, is the sovereignty of God, the story of Jesus in our life, is it worth it? This is all of that. What do we, how do we do that when there is a disconnect? How do we match the story of Jesus and our story together? That's the question. And here's this word, and it happens in all three of these segments. I want you to know this is very intentional what Matthew's doing. Look at the first part in verse 15. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill. Somebody say fulfill. Fulfill. Write that word, circle that word, and do it three times in this passage. Was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse 17, and then was fulfilled. Somebody say fulfilled. Fulfilled, right. Then go to verse 23. That, that might be fulfilled, that he'd be called a Nazarene. You have these three components, fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. Why does God's story and my story look so different? It's because some things are being fulfilled. Some things are being brought together. The first part of this idea of fulfilling is that God's sovereignty is not failing, it's fulfilling. And we got to know the difference. That God's sovereignty is not failing in our life, 
It is fulfilling something. God's sovereignty was not failing Mary and Joseph. God's sovereignty was not failing the brokenhearted mothers having their babies ripped from their arms. God was not failing Mary and Joseph having to become uh, citizens of Nazareth, Nazareth. God was not failing. God was fulfilling. That's the first part. The second part of fulfill is this idea of to bring about. Fulfill is to complete, to bring about, to accomplish. And so then this is our deeper, this, this is the hope in all of these things. The first one. It says, this was to fulfill. They went to Egypt. Why? To fulfill this, that out of Egypt, I will call my son. This is powerful. The fulfillment, the, the fulfillment and, and Egypt and the land is essential. And as I mentioned it before, Egypt is going backwards, not forwards. And Egypt is an invitation into, into out of covenant versus into deeper covenant. See, covenant was always related to the land. The promise of God was all related to the land. So the idea was you wanted to get out of Egypt and into Israel. You wanted to get out of Egypt and into the land that God had given his people. You want to get out of Egypt. But then Jesus is born, and now they're going into Egypt. It's like they're going backwards. It's a literal, when you read this, you're, you're meant to see this as the undoing of the covenant, not the fulfillment of the covenant. But in Jesus going back to Egypt, he's actually fulfilling the covenant. Why? Because the covenant is Jesus. That's the difference. That he's breaking free from the idea that the land is the covenant, but that when Jesus comes, Jesus himself is the covenant. So then for Mary and Joseph, because of Jesus to go to Egypt is being invited not out of or reversal of the promise of God, but invited into the promise of God because the promise of God is Jesus himself and not the reward. And so then the first part of making sense of these two stories is sometimes you can imagine Mary Joseph or you, and you could say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was coming and he was in charge. Why does it feel like I'm losing the promises of God instead of gaining them? And, the, and the, here's the thing is, if you're looking to Jesus, it doesn't matter where you are. But if you're looking at the promises, it matters a great deal. And if you're looking at the land, all of a sudden Jesus doesn't seem worth it. But if you're looking at Jesus as the actual promise of God, the, the glory of God, the gospel, the good news, salvation, that Jesus himself is the prize of the covenant with all of its ultimate fulfillment in the new world. But if Jesus himself is the promise, then it doesn't matter whether you're in Egypt or Israel or anywhere else, you have the promise. So then whatever your story is disconnected from God's great story, the question is not what do you have, the question is who do you have? And if you have Jesus, you have the promise. And you're not, you've not reversed God's promises. You're very much in the promises of God. Amen, amen. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw, go down, verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. We're making this connection between children here. What do you say to the moms and dads who buried babies? You don't say something light and airy. Just trust Jesus. It's true. There has to be something so much deeper here. 
you say? You say this. All of us have to make a decision that it is better with Jesus than if we had our own children. All of us have to make a decision to say, it is better that I have Christ than if I lost anything, which is what Paul says, look, goes, look I can lose it all, and it's all gain. If I lost it all, but I have Christ, it is all gain. And all of us, all of us are invited in Advent to come in. Jesus is better than if I lost anything. And if I, if I lose that thing for the sake of Christ, that's the difference. These parents lost their baby boys, not, not for the sake of whatever, for the sake of the arrival of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus in the world. If we leave everything for the sake of Christ and go, you could do with anything you want. God, you're writing a story. You, you could do whatever you want in my life. You could take whatever you want in my life. I'm going back to the first section that to be with Jesus is not a loss of the promise. That is the promise. The promise is not parenthood. The promise is not long life of our children. The promise is not sicklessness, health, or money. The promise is Jesus. And so you go, man, I will give anything for the revelation of Jesus. And God, I trust you're going to take anything. Because if you lose it for the sake of Christ, you surrendered for the sake of Christ, God is doing a redemptive work in all of it. And here's the second part of the fulfilled. And we're told out of this little prophecy in Jeremiah that none of these little boys and their death was wasted. There is no life or death or suffering in between that's wasted. How do we know that? When the scriptures quote an Old Testament scripture, it obviously, it, it, it at times embodies the whole promise. It just, just starts with the first stanza, but then it embodies the, the point of the whole thing. Can I read to you two verses? Verse 18 is here. I want you to hear um, some other. Here's what the Lord says. Here's what's quoted in Matthew. But I want you to hear what comes right after. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel's weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. Listen to the next part because this is what's actually being communicated here. You're in your grief. Now what? Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 31, 16. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. What's the point? God doesn't waste the lives of children. God doesn't waste suffering, but that he redeems it, and there is not a baby and when you meet Jesus, you'll meet these. There's not a baby in heaven that was killed in this slaughter that is not fully aware of how this child brought the awareness and the arrival of Christ and glories in it. Because that's what we believe in the resurrection. And that's the promise of Jeremiah 15. And that's what you tell people who are grieving. God is not going to waste this. And lastly... Verse 23, and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth so what was spoken by the prophets might be 
fulfilled, brought about, so that he would be called a Nazarene. Here, here's what's going on with this. It wasn't just that Jesus was trying to get away and kind of hide up in the hills so that he didn't get found. Being a Nazarene was, a, was this beautiful image of being Messiah, being the Savior. The Nazarene community stems from the line of David. So when Jesus, Joseph, and Mary find their way in this little podunk town of 400 people, away from everything and away from all of their family, no, a new normal, what they're actually doing in that new normal is fulfilling the reality and the display that Jesus is Savior by connecting Christ with the line of David. That God is working all things in your life to make Jesus look good. And here's the thing. Jesus wants to be seen as a savior. A Nazarene in the line of David. He wants to be seen as one who looks good as a savior of your life. And so then therefore, God's story is that Jesus would be seen as a savior, which means there's some things that we walk through in our life, especially our very soul in which we need God's salvation and redemption. Which means we need this story. Because God is most interested not in being absorbed into your life, but to be displayed through your life as the only hope in life. And that's how his story and our story collide. And you're invited Advent is inviting you to see God over all things and then to see Jesus as all valuable, valuable enough to surrender even the most cherished of us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, it's not easy. I know there are women and men in this room who've experienced great loss or have always wanted a baby and has not been able to, cannot. Some who have had to say goodbye to that altogether. Oh, Jesus. Remind us that we have not missed the promise but we are in the promise because you are the reward. Remind us, Jesus, that you're writing a story that doesn't just want people to see how powerful you are, but wants to see, wants the world to see what a savior you are. And it means that there's there are places and ways in which our story is being written, our periods in time are being allotted so that you can be magnified as a savior of us. If we, if we have the strength, nobody's going to worship Jesus. But if we're weak and we're broken and we're at wit's end, and we're holding to a beautiful savior, then the world sees Jesus. And that's what we want in our church. And that's what we want in our lives. We pray in your name. Amen.